Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I know you can hardly stand the weight. No, not Easter. No, not peeps at 50% off on Easter Monday, Monday either. But in just two weeks, we're going to know the results of this year's Academy Awards. I'm sure that eight or nine, eight, nine of you are probably sitting on the edge of your seats uh, waiting. Maybe only three or four of which will even watch any more than the red carpet part to look at the fashions. You know, I wonder sometimes, aside from maybe the fashion thing or if you work in the industry, uh, if any, that many people really care anymore. Uh, the Academy Awards have gone from a viewership of around 50 million in the 1980s down to just 9 million and change last year. Uh, this one is supposed to be a sort of coming out or coming back party um, kind of the full-blown event as it used to be in, in pre-COVID past. Um, last year's scaled-back version was the lowest rated of all time. Uh, but COVID aside, viewership has generally been in a steady decline for decades now. And that's right in line with the Grammy Awards uh, and the Emmy Awards. Those are the other two lines on there. Uh, people don't watch. Most of us obviously don't care. Maybe the whole thing is just an outdated idea. You know, maybe Hollywood has lost its glitz along with its uh, bigger-than-life, non-computer-generated heroes. Or maybe since we don't get to vote by asking for a refund on our way out of the theater, uh, we just, we're not interested. You know, people may feel that if a movie was any good, then they already got awarded when they got rewarded at the box office. One of the movies nominated for Best Picture this year wasn't half bad, but it was only half the movie. Now, how can... Getting something like that nominated even ha even happen. Do marathon runners get the first place prize money because they were leading the race at the halfway point? What if, you know, the last half, which is maybe two years down the road, uh, turns out to be the old stinkeroo? Can we get the Oscar back? Now, that being said, there's one award you should really care about, uh, and it's a, it'll air on Easter Sunday on the Reels channel. It's the 30th Annual Movie Guide Awards. Um, now, they reward films for telling wholesome, spiritually uplifting, inspirational, and redemptive stories. That's one you should check out. The numbers really do seem to say that watching Hollywood pat each other on the back is a tired, outdated concept, maybe a real stinkeroo. Not surprisingly, a lot of these people, a lot of people these days are saying that the Bible is no different than a bad movie, that it's just an outdated, irrelevant account of ancient history that's questionable at best. But the numbers don't back that up. Over five billion copies of the Bible have been printed and distributed. It's the best-selling book of all time, continues to be, and for good reason. It's unique in that it's the very word of God, and that makes it timeless. And it means that it continues to have much to say, all of it relevant, if you just take the time to read it or listen to it and let God speak to you through it. Our gospel lesson this morning is a great example. If there's one biblical metaphor that translates easily into our culture today, it might be the one Jesus uses in Luke 13, 35, where he laments over Jerusalem's future before he even gets there. He says, look, your house is forsaken. Other translations render that abandoned or left to you desolate. It's a, it's a picture of the emptiness, a place where you know, God has left the building. That would be desolate. Jerusalem's future really is bleak. Jerusalem is where they'll crucify Jesus. 
I wonder how many people who don't really know the story of God's love for us in the Bible might miss the hero in Jesus because they got their information maybe somewhere other than the source. Maybe their opinions and impressions have been formed from, you know, what they've heard, not what they've read or experienced for themselves. Kind of like uh, getting, you know, your news filtered through Facebook or maybe a dozen other sites. The first century church leaders were looking for a warrior savior, someone who would uh, be bigger than life, someone who would drive out Rome and reestablish Israel as the world power that it once was. They were blinded to the savior who had already defeated the most powerful adversary in the world, Satan himself. That's what happened in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted by the devil and he beat him on every count with the word of God. But these men had been blinded by Satan, these adversaries of Jesus, and so they could only see him as a threat to their own power and influence. You know, maybe people were looking for a savior, maybe are looking for a savior uh, these days. And they might pass right over Jesus because he seems a little too soft, a little too pretty, according to uh, modern artist conceptions, and uh, maybe a little too soft-spoken with all this talk about love, love, love. A little too shepherd-like, maybe. A leader, but a leader of sheep in the face of a pack of wolves. But this morning we're reminded that the more you read about Jesus, the more you realize that, sure, he could be uh, tender when that's what was called for, but he could also be tough as nails. Pretty much everything you'd want if you were shopping for someone to look up to or to save you. Now, did you hear all that in our gospel lesson? Might be a little hard to understand out of context. See, Uh, here's what was happening. Some Pharisees, some teachers of the law, these were the church leaders back then, um, they come to Jesus, and and they come to him right after uh, he told this this, uh, powerful and shocking lesson. Um, Now, this wasn't, these these people, these church leaders, didn't make up Jesus' fan base either. The story he told uh, was about how, really the point was about how a lot less people are going to go to heaven than think they are because they're trying to get in through what people these days might call the all paths lead to heaven door or maybe the I'm pretty sure I've been good enough and for sure I'm way better than my neighbor door. Those doors may appeal to people's uh, fallen clouded reason but they only lead to people's destruction and not surprisingly as you get familiar with God's upside down economy in the Bible where the first will be last and the last first. Jesus teaches that there's only one door, a largely ignored narrow door that leads to heaven, the one labeled by faith alone in Jesus. That's the only one that will actually get you where you want to go. And the day was coming when the door, that door was going to get slammed right in their faces unless they repented and turned to Jesus. Now, some of those church leaders have come to warn Jesus in typical Western movie fashion, maybe, that he better hit the trail because... King Herod's got him in his sights. He's out to kill him. It wasn't exactly a warning to get out of Dodge by sundown uh, because uh, Jesus hadn't entered Dodge for the last time yet. You know, Jerusalem being Dodge, I guess. Um, But he would soon enough. And these are the same guys now who are generally raving about him being a fraud and a fanatic. And so you have to wonder, we just have a plot twist here, a little misdirection, or has he finally won them over? Do they really care about his welfare? Probably not. A few Pharisees did become believers, but not very many. Herod ruled over the provinces of Galilee and Perea, which was an area east of the Jordan River. And it's likely that's where this whole conversation is taking place today. It's even more likely that this group was just trying to steer Jesus away from their own region so 
the, they could limit the damage he was doing to their ministry there, preaching and teaching against works righteousness or salvation by good works. It would be better for them if he just if he just move along. Since he was headed to Jerusalem anyway, maybe if he just saddled up and got there uh, sooner than later, that would be a good thing. He was kind of wet blanket on what they had going on. Or maybe they just wanted to taunt him. Maybe they wanted to see the look of fear in his eyes when, when he heard that the corrupt sheriff or the king, you know, has him in his sights. Either way, Jesus surprises them by revealing, revealing his uh, independent and his defiant side. You know, and then there's that whole total lack of fear, even the fear of death. I mean, you got to love it. When you read through it, what he's telling him, in effect, is, you know, you tell that old fox for me. I'll get to Jerusalem when God is good and ready for me to be there. Meanwhile, I've got things left to do. You got that? So I've still got some miracles to perform. I've got some teaching to do. I've got some demons out there that still need casting out. Some great parables I can't wait to share. You're going to love them if you understand them. No, you tell Herod I'll be there when the time's right. I know it might be inconvenient for him, but I'm not worried. He knows as well as I do that if a prophet's going to be killed, it'll probably be in Jerusalem, just as it always has. He'll get it. In fact, the next time you see me in Jerusalem, it'll be the shouts of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's already thinking about Palm Sunday. Now, does that sound like a Jewish John Wayne or what? Certain, authoritative, confident that nothing's going to happen to him until his father in heaven says, it's time and no one can change that. But mostly I think it sounds just like Jesus. You know, fearless, focused, and certainly filled with purpose. Now you have to remember too that Herod is the king who separated Jesus' cousin's John the Baptist's head from his shoulders. The house of Herod was a bloodthirsty bunch. And if this was really a warning about the king's attentions, uh, that it wasn't something that should be taken lightly. Herod was leery of Jesus. He was curious, but he was leery. He didn't want to believe Jesus was who he claimed to be, but he actually uh, was willing to believe that he might be John the Baptist back from the dead, that he might need re-killing. But Jesus is in the dark about all this. He, he'd come to become our once and for all time sacrifice for sin. And once he set his face toward Jerusalem after his transfiguration, there'd be no stopping him until he completed that mission, his journey to the cross. And from that moment in Luke chapter 9 until Luke 19 in his triumphant entry into the city, nothing's going to distract him. Not the crowds, not the disciples, not the Pharisees, certainly not the Herods. Truly the day was drawing near for him to be stretched out on a cross and laid in a tomb, only to be raised to life again on the third day, but only in God's time. It's really a great model and a lesson for us as we come face to face with our own weaknesses and doubts, our own failures of faith during this Lenten journey of, of our own. Salvation has come. Restoration through repentance and faith is ours, won for us on Christ's cross, if we'll only embrace the promise. But now suddenly the mood shifts in the story. The scene changes. The tension drains away as our, our Lord reflects on the great city's future. There's no tough guy swagger here. Jesus laments over its future. He mourns for them. He'd come to save his people, all his people, if they would only turn to him. But he knows that many of them won't. You know, it's sort of the other bookend, the, the, the tender bookend to our story today. As he laments, your house is left to you 
desolate, empty. Jesus was right. That desolation was coming. This is taking place probably A.D. 30, A.D. 33, probably near the end of Jesus' life. In A.D. 66, uh, less than a generation from from then, uh, the Jewish population would rebel against the empire. That was something Rome couldn't stand for. And so in A.D. 70, Roman legions under future Emperor Titus uh, retook the city and destroyed a great part of it in the process, including dismantling the beautiful temple, which has never been rebuilt to this day. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus lamented, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. He doesn't have all that much time left, and they still don't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. The crowds don't get it. Uh, even the disciples, the, the, uh, the men who've been with him for three years now, uh, people who would be left behind to carry on the ministry. They don't quite get it yet. They don't understand that they would after the resurrection, but not until then. Right now, they don't understand their only hope of salvation is going to lie in his sacrifice on their behalf, that it's going to take his suffering and death if they're ever going to receive God's promise of new life. That's why this lesson shows up in Lent. Uh, So many people still don't get that part. So many people are still in danger, and now we're the ones left We're the ones left behind to tell the story. Their hope, maybe, in becoming connected to Christ. Maybe people you know. I'm sure Jesus still laments over all those people in danger of being lost. Paul wrote to Timothy that God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus is thinking about all those who won't, then and now. See, God's word is timeless. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate, devastated. What's he saying? Your house and your job and your family and your assets and your investments. How often I've wanted to protect you from yourselves, from your bad choices, your mistakes, your illusions. But you're, going, you're all grown up now, and you have a choice and a will of your own. And I grieve some of those choices you've made. Mourn and return to me. Weep over all the times you've forgotten me and why I came and what I've done for you. Come home, and one day we'll enjoy a homecoming together forever. And suddenly our He-Man Western has turned into a story of unrequited love. A lesson for Lent, really, powerful enough to bring tears to the eyes of even the most hard-boiled believers. That's what brings on our Lord's lament. Even before reaching Jerusalem and the cross, Jesus is standing there ready to offer them everything they need to attain eternal life, the salvation and the rescue that really counts, and they're not willing to come to him. Like John writes in his gospel, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Sure, they're caught up in a busy and stressful world. They live in constant anxiety and despair. There are people searching for meaning and purpose in life. They feel lost and out of control. But their own sin has blinded them to God's answer for their cries. Am I talking about first century Jerusalem here or 21st century America? Some things don't change. You know, think about the power of sin for a moment. How often we we underestimate it, I guess. Uh, We entered this world already lost in sin, right? We were born with sinful natures, that tendency to turn away from God. We inherited it from our parents who inherited it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve, our first parents. 
We receive new life, though, at our baptisms. We also receive the Holy Spirit from God to guide and direct our lives. Now, have we embraced the gift of new life by embracing the Savior who won it for us on the cross? Eh, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Have we ever given our Lord reason to weep over us? Probably. No. Absolutely. When the reality of that hits us, do we understand why we don't spend every single waking hour, you know, thanking God? Power of sin. You know, it's what the Apostle Paul was writing about when he lamented in our lesson from Philippians today. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. You know, we still live in a world in desperate need of heroes, don't we? Above all, in desperate need of God. And he offers himself to everyone. It's his free gift in Christ Jesus. To everyone. We need him in our schools, in their curriculum, and yet we've, we've shut their doors to him. We need him in our government, but for the most part, you know, he's been excluded there. We need him in our marriages and our families, and we've shut him out. The only solution is in our lesson. Sin may blind us. Our Lord may have been spurned. is still being spurned, but he's a persistent lover. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together under my wings. How many times do you suppose Jesus looked out over the crowds? You know, and he saw them as sheep in need of a shepherd. How many times do you suppose he he was filled with compassion and he recognized their need for direction and meaning and purpose in life? How about every time? In Romans 10, 21, Paul quotes God from uh, the book of Isaiah. He says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All day long, God holds out his hands to us. But you would not, Jesus says. Lent is all about changing that. Uh, it's, a, it's about honest reflection and repentance and returning to the Lord who loved us enough to die for us. To return to his waiting embrace where all things will get better. Only better. This season isn't just a time to feel guilty. It's really a time of renewal. A time to embrace the, the new life the way Jesus embraced his own executioners. Loving them, even as they were nailing him to the cross. Asking the Father to forgive them because they didn't understand what they were doing. They were blinded by sin. But that same love would lift him from the grave on Easter morning. So let's take our own blinders off this morning and embrace the Savior with a renewed vigor. We've tried it our way. Now let's try it his. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.